This is a special broadcast of Socolo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Socolo, which means public square in Spanish, is dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship across ethnic, racial, and partisan lines. Tonight's program features Luis Perez of Los Lobos and comic actor Chich Marin in conversation with Oscar Garza, deputy editor of the Los Angeles Times Magazine. Perez is a gifted musician, songwriter, and cultural observer. From Chich and Chong to judging Amy, Marin has been a trailblazer in Latino entertainment and has amassed a museum-quality collection of Chicano art. Socolo is proud to present an evening with Luis Perez and Chich Marin. Our first guest tonight, I'm really honored to have here. I've been a uh, longtime admirer of Los Lobos, and uh, Luis Perez, along with his major writing partner, David Hidalgo, are responsible for many of the band's just most fabulous songs. And um, really honored to have Luis Perez here tonight. You know, I thought I knew everything about this band. And so recently I was at the bookstore and I come across a vintage guitar magazine. And there's a huge magazine. You guys are on the cover. And I come to this passage, uh, you talking about your influences, musical influences, saying that you listened to a lot of country music as a child because your mother was from Wyoming. Now, that was a new one. Yeah. Where did your parents meet? In L.A. My mom was, uh, her mother was a cook for migrant workers. They came through El Paso and they traveled following the migrant camps and eventually they settled into uh, Greeley, Colorado, then eventually across in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and that's where she grew up. Eventually they made their way to California, to L.A. because my grandmother had a brother that lived in L.A., so they came here. My dad grew up in uh, Las Cruces, Nuevo Mexico, and he came to L.A. probably as a child. I don't know much about him because he died when I was eight years old, but he was a car painter. Somehow, my mother, well, my mother became a sewing machine operator, like many of the uh, mm. ancestors did, you know, working on sewing machines and sweatshops. And they eventually met and uh, moved into the house that belonged to my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know exactly all the story. They're both gone now. Yeah. I'm an orphan, but, you know, these are all my family right here, right here. <laughs> my mom bought me a... Uh, guitar when I was uh, 12 years old. You know, I showed interest in wanting to play guitar and living in, in, in a pretty volatile part of East L.A. Mm -hmm. It was her way of kind of keeping me off the streets. Mm -hmm. And every guy in the band will probably say the same thing. You know, that's, that was the way that our moms kind of protected us by encouraging us to do other things other than, you know, hanging out in the corner. When the album came out, you talked about how it's been, you know, there have been times where it's been hard to keep the band together, but that you said, you know, if there was any time that you seriously thought that you wouldn't stay together, that your mothers wouldn't have let it happen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we grew up together. I mean, I'd, I'd, I've known Dave since uh, high school. Conrad lived two blocks away from me, even though we didn't know each other. I knew of him because he had a, a three-piece, like, power trio, like, if you remember, like, Blue Cheer. <laughs> so I, I could actually go in my backyard and listen to his band rehearse. And he lived like three blocks away. And, and so I knew him, and I always run into him. And we eventually, you know, we all went to high school together. Uh, Caesar and David went, knew each other since junior high. So in high school, we all hung out together, and everybody played in, in, in bands. I had a band with David. Caesar had like a 13-piece soul band. Conrad was still, you know, uh, you know playing to 11 or 12. Turn up the knobs. You know. And after high school, uh, we were just friends, and it just seemed like the natural progression for us to just start playing music together. When you guys were starting out, did you have any sense that it would last this long and, and, and still go on? When did you get a sense that this might turn into something? 
Uh, there was a certain chemistry. I, I don't like to use the word magic. You know, magic sounds like something that's kind of man-made. You know, but there's something uh, that was um, that is still very elusive to me. Some thing that happens when the four of us make music together. Something that uh, that everybody very early out recognized. Uh, my wife's in the audience. You know, she's been with me before the band, and she recognized it as well. And that's what something that kept us together. For, for We knew that there was something going on there. And when we started playing Mexican music in 1973, it was completely new to most Chicanos as well. Most Chicanos wanted to kind of assimilate, you know, go through the whole homogenization process of forgetting who we are and just wanting to become, you know, what we watch on, the, on TV. And we were attracted as musicians. And so... Uh, we spent the next 10 years just playing Mexican music, but it was very, un, uh, you know, unfashionable. People yeah. didn't know what to do. You know, I was, we were talking about the first show we did at UCLA College in, a, in, in the um, uh, student lounge, and we played Mexican music, and the young people didn't know what, whether to clap or, or whether what are, are they going to call us Tijuaneros if we, if we clap or <laughs> what's the deal here? You know, but uh, it it was something that that we found that was uh, real gratifying, satisfying to us, and we, and we kept doing it for 10 years until we made our way back to rock and roll. I wanted to ask you about downloading because um, you have three sons, right? Three sons? Three, three kids, sons. Three sons. Right. One of them's, at least one of them is a musician. Uh, two of them are. Two of them are. So have you had the big talk with them about downloading? It's, um, it, well, I mean, what's your position? I mean, you know, so here you have sons who may be going into the same business as you are. Right, You're watching right. an industry in some ways collapse around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So where do you... I don't, won't ask you to speak for the band, but where do you stand on, on downloading them? Well, if you remember the, the whole um, hoopla, or all the, the whole brouhaha, rather, about uh, um, Napster back yeah. a few years ago, all along, you know, we saw that, that this was ultimately would be very beneficial to a, mm-hmm. to a band because uh, the record industry w- is really trying to hang on to this old kind of rusty machine that doesn't work anymore. We knew that, that uh, one way or another it's going to all work itself out, that the money on publishing and artist royalties would eventually kind of sort itself out. You just got to go through this kind of chaos that happens, like a big bang of uh, internet kind of stuff before things settle down. But just, and to, actually just to, to play devil's sense. advocate for a second, put yourself in the position of a band that's just starting out. Uh-huh. Because you could argue that an established band like yours and with your fan base are probably not the people that are doing a lot of music swapping, swapping files online. Mm-hmm. Arguable, but right. probably so. So if you were, in a, say, your son, I mean, just starting out, would you feel the same way? I mean, I, I advocate, never, I, advocating you well, know, you know, I'll free, you, I, free swapping of music. I, I never thought I'd see the day where a, a young band would not look at uh, a recording contract as the holy grail. Mm-hmm. A lot of young bands don't even care about rec- They don't want to sign their lives off to record companies mm-hmm. anymore because they can do it all themselves. They can they can promote themselves online and ultimately just you know take take control of their of their future. So do you do you see those new models happening with with young bands? I've seen that happen yep. a lot. You know, th- there's a there's a band called String Cheese Incident um, out of uh, Colorado. They put out their own records. They even own their own travel agency, where they offer packages to their fans to fly out to their shows. Mm-hmm. They have this incredible. Uh, network and, and incredible business going on, and they do it all themselves hmm. without having to sell themselves to, to a record company where they basically own everything. 
what role do you see record players, record companies playing then? I mean, what what does well? What's your relationship like with your current label? I, I yeah. In that regard, everything is going to change. I just see it happening. Uh, go, go running back in this conversation. Just you know, rewind just uh, a bit. Eventually, it was going to work out that artists are going to get paid. iTunes offers 99 cent downloads on Tuesdays. They got free Tuesdays. Whatever. Uh, Jobs made a made a, a public speech and lecture uh, that. They're not in the music business. They're in selling hardware. They, they don't care about the 99 cents that they're getting for iTunes because they're, they're, it's attracting them to buy iPods. So they don't care about the 99 cents. They gladly give that back to the artist. Mm -hmm. So what was all that noise about when, when, uh, when we see uh, record companies coming out of a courtroom saying, we won, Napster's shut down, they're just going to open somewhere else. No. So well, in fact, this week a judge ruled in favor of the other yeah. services that have propped up in yeah. So, uh, Since Napster went down. Yeah, as far as the future, the way we access music is going to be completely different. Mm -hmm. I, I, we see that already. Eventually, you're going to see like the blockbusters of the world disappear because you're going to be downloading your movies also. But at this point, for you, for you guys, the label still plays a role for you, obviously. Yeah, to a certain degree, it does. Yeah. It does. It, you know, um, it's a way to, to promote ourselves, mm -hmm. to underwrite things that we wouldn't be able to do on our own. Uh, we have a DVD we just shot uh, at uh, two nights at the Fillmore. It'll be out in November. Lobo's live at the Fillmore, and that kind of stuff. You know, that takes some feria. You know. Yeah. So it's you know we get that kind of underwritten by by the record company, and then in, in in turn, of course, we have to give them kind of like the lion's share of the proceeds, and we get the little piece. Yeah. But you know what? The, the rap artists had it down from the very beginning because what they would do is they'd sell 10 million copies of their first record. They produce themselves, they record themselves, they, they finance the whole thing. Then they turn around, they license it to the record company. And all of a sudden, they're making the, you know, 4.99, and they're making the penny instead of yeah. the other way around. Which is actually what Prince did, right, with his oh, record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just ke to yeah. Contr keep control of it, because the record companies, are, are, are which are necessary for distribution, you know, they sold 10 million copies. They're offering them just a little piece. They must rather have a little piece of a huge pie than nothing yeah. at all. Yeah. They serve a purpose. I'm still trying to figure it out. Are you sick of playing La Bamba? <laughs> you know, we went through that one, <laughs> one, one little phase where, where we just, oh, come on, man. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, I was, I was meeting, meeting, during that period, I was meeting people who would bring their kids backstage yeah. to, to, to get autographs. Yeah, this is the and La Bamba guy. Did. Yeah, yeah and, and this was during when La Bamba was really big, and yeah. they'd bring their kids backstage to get an autograph, <laughs> and they had this look in their eye like, man, you know. Man. <laughs> Day and night, night and day. So, uh, but you know, we, we play it. We play it all the time. You know, we're real grateful for all that happening, and we're grateful for the fact that we had the opportunity to uh, expose uh, Richie Valens, you know, the, one of the first Chicano rockers. Thank you very much. Uh, Louis is going to stay out here after we bring Cheech out. Our next guest is a. Uh, leading figure from the entertainment business who has uh, made his mark in a lot of areas, starting with comedy with his partner Tommy Chong, and then he went on from there to build a uh, quite a career as a television and film actor. And he, uh, along the way, has also become probably the country's leading patron of Chicano art. He has amassed quite a collection. His collection composes pretty much most of this exhibition called Chicano Visions, American Painters on the Verge that is currently touring the country. It just uh, opened at its first venue at San Diego. Slowly make its way to Los Angeles, I think in 2007. It's booked until then. 
But he is, uh, you know, like Los Lobos, has been a, sort of an icon for the Chicano community. Somehow I've never managed to meet him until tonight, and he is just the sweetest, most generous person. That You know, we asked him to come, and he said he would come, and unlike a lot of showbiz people, he actually showed up. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, Cheech Marin. When did you start collecting? What was the what was the first piece of art you ever bought? Uh, I bought a piece by George Yepes called Amor Matizado. Uh, it was I bought it like in '85, right around there. And I was uh, self-educated in art from a very early age. I was about I think I was in fifth or sixth grade, and I wanted to learn to uh, expand my my horizons. And I was always interested in art because I couldn't do it. You know, I was. I, my first grade teacher looked at my paintings and said, well, you're never going to be an artist. <laughs> and uh, so, so I, I went to the library every, every Saturday, I remember, and then it would take out all the art portfolios. And I would just study them. Okay, that's what Cezanne looks like. That's what Moreau looks like. That's what Kandinsky looks like. So I could be able to walk into a party someday and go, oh, yes, that's a nice uh, Chagall. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, but, you know, to, to, to fill up my nose, but I was really interested in it, so I just kind of... So, uh, and I studied it all the way through high school, and, and then when I, but my gap in my knowledge was contemporary art. And I eventually married a, a painter, and she started taking me around all the West Side galleries, and, uh, and, and I had money at that point. <laughs> and I started uh, buying Chicano, you know, first you buy something that's going to fit over the couch, you know. Okay, well, that looked good, you know. And then the more I saw these artists, the more I studied, I was really resonated with what I saw. And this is, and then I saw a bigger picture emerging, and they were telling this story. This is about a common experience. And very early in the process, I got introduced to the artists from Texas, from San Antonio. And I said, this is, there's some genetic code happening in here. This is a, this is a bigger picture than even the, the, what the artists are seeing. And so I started uh, theorizing that there was this Chicano school of art happening under our noses, but it wasn't recognized. And when you started, did you, did you set out to start a collection, or did you start just sort of buying pieces here and there? You know, I'm, I'm a, a collector by nature. I, I, I collected marbles and matchbook covers and baseball cards and whatever there was. I had this kind of mania for categorization, you know. I was put everything in order, and I knew what, what, what was missing in the line of succession, you know, so I... Uh, uh, so when it came to uh, art, I had a, uh, uh, I was buying Art Nouveau and Art Deco before when I was on the road with Chong, uh, and nobody knew what it was. So I, you know, I, I traveled from town to town, and I would go go into the town and whip out the yellow pages. Look, okay, call these guys up. Do you have this? This? I'll be right down. And so I put together a big collection for for cheap back in those days. This exhibition. Um what exactly is the role that Clear Channel Communications is playing? Because uh, this is a large media conglomerate that is yeah. now expanding from radio and billboards. They're now involved in Broadway and theater, yeah. and now they're starting a visual art component. And there's been a little hand-wringing about you know, exactly what they're up to. Well, but I, I'm just the front for Clear Channel. I mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, but Clear Channel, I have very little involvement with Clear Channel. This show does. Yeah. It, was, it was started originally by... <laughs> <laughs> Except for when they fund what you want, yeah, uh, you know, uh, they they bought a company that I started this production with called BBH. It was they were, they'd made BBH in San Antonio, 
made uh, uh, interactive educational and natural history and science exhibit shows for science museums. And they had no expertise in the, in the art world. And so when we got together, we started this dual, dual show that's uh, interactive education and a fine art show. And so uh, we, were, we, had, we got a fund. Of, actually, the true heroes of the funding of this show is, is the Target Stores and Hewlett Packard, who uh, funded the production of the show, and that took all the money. Yeah. Um, at, at some point during, we were just about ready to open in San Antonio for our first show, and uh, BBH got acquired by Clear Channel. So at this point, they only represent three trucks. To me, I mean, that's yeah. they, they haul the paintings from one venue to another. You know, here we are sitting in what is uh, arguably the, the, the mecca of Chicano art, yeah. aside from San Antonio, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yet this city has labored and, and failed to get a Latino museum off the ground. Yeah. Uh, but there has, there has been efforts and there's been talk for a long time about starting an institution here and it's just not happened. What do you, what do you ascribe that? What do you ascribe that to? Organization more than anything, I think. Uh, when we finally got the show put into LACMA here, it'll end the tour in, in 07 in LACMA, uh, it was the hardest one to get. And I think the prevailing view of the uh, museum establishment was that we didn't really have to pay attention to the Latino population because they didn't support the museum in, in, in numbers and they didn't contribute financially to the museum. What, what I've learned through this whole process is that uh, museums are really private institutions that are funded by big God bucks guys in whatever city. And they determine what art goes in there. I mean, and at some point, the city, in this case, LACMA, 35% of their budget comes from the city, so they're vulnerable to other outside criticism. But for the most part, museums put in whatever the hell they want to put in. And then they're only answerable to people who fund them. If there were a Latino museum in L.A., would this show be there? Or would you still want to see it, as you, I think, have been quoted as saying, you know, trying to get it into the mainstream, into a mainstream institution. Well, yeah, I, I think that uh, whatever the mainstream institution in whatever city we go to, that's where I want to be because that's where I think this art belongs. Mm -hmm. I think it's it, it's in line with the great American tradition and world tradition of art that has not been recognized. And the, and the purpose of this tour was to give Chicano painters and artists a stage that they had heretofore been denied. You know, I was living. In New York, I uh, think right around 85, 86, I was making a picture. And I was hanging out with a lot of these go-go uh, 80s artists, uh, Julian Schnabel and Keith Haring and all these guys. And they had houses in the Hamptons, and they exhibited at Kostel and Basel and all around the world and big collectors. And the Chicano painters I knew didn't have studios, you know, and they just had to struggle. For, they, weren't, they didn't have gallery representation. They didn't, you know. And I said, there's an inequity here because these guys are much better painters. Mm. And so I, when I came back, well, thank you. <laughs> but it's, it's the truth. It's the truth. And, and, and I said, well, you know, when I came back, I said, I'm in a position here. I'm in a position to use my celebrity to try to get them recognition. And uh, that was my first mistake, man. <laughs> my, 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 my biggest uh, hesitation was having to deal with all the Chicano artists, you know. <laughs> It's all chiefs and no Indians, you know. <laughs> and, and, so, and so I go, well, I'm the only Chicano. They don't, they don't all hate at the same time. So I'm going to go do this, you know. 
When did you meet Tommy Chong? I don't know that I know this story. When did you meet Tommy? Ah, very Chong. El chingo. I'm close. Tommy, Tommy and I met in in Vancouver, B.C. He's he's Canadian. He's he's half uh, Chinese and half English Irish, and so he grew up there. And I was living in Vancouver at the time. And uh, uh, wait a I, minute, what were you doing in Vancouver? <laughs> I was protected against a Vietnamese invasion. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so they were they were at that time they were disguising themselves as Chinese, you know. <laughs> and they were hanging out in, in, in you know little Chinatown in, huh, in Vancouver, but I was keeping an eye on them for the government. <laughs> Your service to this country yeah, is service to the much country. appreciated. Yeah, it was an alternative service, but service nonetheless. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I came to Vancouver, and, and the first day I was in there, I was in downtown Chinatown, and, and I saw this club and had these pictures of these guys doing like skits with naked girls. And it was it was like a burlesque house. It looked like burlesque. And I remember seeing that. I go, wow, that's that's weird. I haven't they probably haven't changed these pictures in 40 years. And the next day, this I was writing. I was a I was a rock and roll writer for magazines. And 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 the editor said, you got to meet this guy named Tommy Chung. He has his improv theater company. And I go, yeah, well, that's cool. And he says, but it's it's a naked improv <laughs> theater company. That's really cool. <laughs> Where is he? <laughs> and so he pointed me back to this club that I had just passed. And, and so what happened was Tommy was a, 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 was a musician, he was a guitar player, he was with Motown and wrote this big hit, Does Your Mama Know About Me? Really? And, yeah. And it became an R&B standard. And so when the band broke up, he had seen improv theater on the road, the committee, the Second City and all these people, and that's what he wanted to do. So he came back to his, his family-owned nightclub which his, his family had turned into Vancouver's first topless club. And so he says, well, but I'm going to do true Tommy Chong style. So, well, we can still do this. We'll just say the girls are actresses now. You get less money. <laughs> true actor, actress fashion. And so he started putting together this improv group, but kept the topless element. <laughs> and it was the most fun I ever had in my life. <laughs> I got paid more for hanging out with naked chicks and smoking dope than delivering carpets, you know? <laughs> so he said, yeah, we, I don't know, let me see the girls. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was it. So we, we had this, uh, we owned the club, so we could do this. We did four hours of naked improv a night for almost a year. I'm sorry I asked you that question. Oh, baby. <laughs> It was, I mean, you know, I was uh, 22, 23 at the time, and I was like, well, if my dad could see me now, <laughs> Oscar the cop. <laughs> and then you and Tommy went on and launched this, this amazing career together. You guys were known for a certain type of comedy. Mm -hmm. and I don't know that you guys, I mean, did you formally break up at some point, and, and then did you make a conscious decision about your own career and what you wanted it to be, and did you ever feel like you had this image that was riding on you that maybe wasn't the best thing? And or did, it ever, did, it ever, did it ever feel like a hindrance to you? Not a hindrance and not that it wasn't the best thing for me. I would, I'd never deny my Chi Chong past. I love every second we were together. I love every movie we made. I love every album we made. I love every concert that we ever did. 
That was the most fun ever. I, I'll never have as much fun as that. But at the point but, that you're... you're but so at okay. the point where we, we broke up, yeah. I was like, I, I want to do anything that doesn't have a big joint in it. Yeah. You know? And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll do anything because I had to kind of break this public image of, of the way not only the audience saw me, but the way the industry saw me because then I wouldn't get any jobs. And what always worked for me, whenever I was stymied, I would go to the typewriter, the computer now, and write something. Mm -hmm. And that's always gotten me out of trouble. Whenever I have to look at the ceiling because the rent's due, like, I get up in the morning and I, just, and I become dedicated to writing whatever it is that's on my mind. And that's yeah. it. That's it. I wrote Born in East L.A. Yeah. right after that. And directed it. And directed it. Mm -hmm. That was fun. You, have you wanted to direct more? It's really a pain in the ass, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I mean, really, it is. I, I, it, it requires a lot of work. It doesn't pay as well. Mm -hmm. But if there's some story you really, really, really want to tell, it's worth doing. And I'm going to probably do it again. But I don't, I don't wake up in the morning and say, I got to direct, you know. Uh, you've been on Judging Amy, the TV show, for, what, a year now? Two uh, this will be my second year, yeah. 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 And uh, thank you. <laughs> Judging, Judging Amy, Amy is a television, a weekly television series on yeah. one of the networks. Yeah, one of the networks. What is it? Uh, Cheech BS. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, what's great about that show is working with Tyne Daly every day. Oh. Uh, she's she's just she's it, you know. She's a real, real actress dedicated. When you're there in the scene, you're just nowhere else in the world. There's nothing else on your mind. And what are you doing on the movie front right now? Uh, I'm about to do another movie with Chong. We're doing another Cheech and Chong movie. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's going to be uh, funded by AARP. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're going to pick up where we left off. <laughs> do you have anything you want to... Uh, come on, jump in here. When, when was the first time you heard about these guys? Oh, when, well, you know, when I was um, doing that. <laughs> <laughs> when he was in our world. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry I asked that question, too. Uh, I guess that's kind of like your La Bamba, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I kind of experienced that when, when we, uh, we played together, came up on stage, and we did a thing for the Chicano Visions of San Diego. Mm -hmm. Then I noticed some Chicanos came over and they pushed like an old Cheech and Chong record for you to sign. Yeah. And for some reason, it just kind of popped in my mind that, you know, like when someone says, oh, yeah, you're the guys that did it La Bamba. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. But, you know, Jimi Hendrix had, had uh, you know, Purple Haze. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's that thing, which is, which is a cool thing, you know. Yeah. You know yeah. For a moment there, it gets a, it's a, it's a little uncomfortable. But, you yeah. know, for the most part, we have to be grateful for what we get, you know. Yeah, you, you had a hit, yeah. you know. I mean, any, every, anybody that gets a hit, like... The first time you hear yourself on the radio, it's like the most transforming moment of your life. Oh, yeah. I was mean, like, I'm on the radio, <laughs> and everybody's hearing this. And Were like, you a musician also? I was always a musician, yeah. yeah. From, I, I made my first record when I was five years old, uh, Amorcito Corazon. I sang a little Mexican song <laughs> right here. I grew up right down the street here, 36 San Pedro, and, 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 San and Pedro. My, my uncle... <laughs> San Pedro. San Pedro. San Pedro. No, 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 it was all black <laughs> at that point. Yo, San Pedro. <laughs> was it? Yeah. yeah. It was, I went to Trinity Street School. <laughs> and, you, and were you trained? You had training as a musician? No, I was no? self-taught. Self I taught myself guitar. Mm -hmm. and, and, but I was always a singer. 
And so I was this little five-year-old kid that could keep a tune. And so my, my uncle recorded me at this little record company in, in the neighborhood. And so I was this novelty. And I sang all the rest of my life. Yep. I, still, I still do. I still do gigs. You do? Yeah, yeah. I, in your name? As yeah, yeah. You know, There's a couple of bands <laughs> I sit in with, like, you know, pretty regular and keep my rock and roll chops, you know. They have to yeah. be loud. And, and I, play, I play every day. Yeah. I play guitar every day, yeah. What? You've been listening to a special presentation of Socolo, Louis Perez and Chich Marin in conversation with Oscar Garza. The Los Angeles Public Library and Socolo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series. Socolo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, and the Latino Weekly, Socolo is made possible by the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit our website, socolola.org. Thanks for joining us.